Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Well, here's the question I'd like to begin with this morning. Uh, what kind of a community would you love to be a part of? You know, human beings are social creatures. Um, that means that uh, one of the most painful experiences any human being can experience is to be cut off from community. Uh, I, was, uh, I read an article a number of years ago about uh, a protest that happened in a California prison. It was back in 2013. You know, prison protests can be very risky for the protesters. You can lose your job. You can lose your, um, your phone privileges, your, your visits, your recreation time. It's very risky to stage a protest in prison. Um, but these prisoners, 30,000 of them, were willing to go on protest for something that most of them weren't even experiencing. So what would motivate someone to risk all of that uh, for other people? It was the abuse of solitary confinement in the California prison system. One of the most painful experiences any human being can go through is to be cut off from community, which means that one of the most life-giving experiences for any human being is to be part of a flourishing community. We're wired for that. We long for that. So, what kind of a community would you just love to be a part of? What does that look like? Can you get uh, a picture of that in your mind? Let your imagination roam. Do you, do you have that picture? Are you holding it in your mind? Okay. Um, now, imagine that um, the very best community that you could possibly imagine that it's just a pale imitation of the kind of community that you're really made for. In other words, if you had the power to create this ideal community that you're imagining, you'd actually be selling yourself far short. Do you believe that a community like that even exists? Do you believe something like that's even possible? This passage that we just read is actually giving us a picture of it. 
Um, you know, we're in a sermon series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. And in the second half of this letter, Paul, he's laying out the Christian life for us. He's saying, if the story of the gospel were really to get deep inside of you, here's what the result would look like in your lives and in your community. So we're looking at this passage. It's an incredibly famous passage. We really could do a whole sermon series just on these six verses. But this morning, uh, let's just look at three huge aspects of what a community that's shaped by the story of the gospel, what would that community really look like? Let's see three things. It, It would be a community of love, a community of truth, and a community of grace. Very familiar words but very um, transformative words when we understand what they really mean in this passage, a community of love, of truth, and of grace, okay? First, a gospel-shaped community is a community of love. And you see that right at the beginning. Paul, uh, he lays out a list of virtues or characteristics that every Christian is supposed to have. And you see that right at the beginning, Paul says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. Now that word put on, we were looking at that word last week. It's a word that means literally clothe yourself. Paul is saying, clothe yourself with these virtues. But here's what I really want us to see this morning. Um, If you look in verse 14, Paul says, above all of these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what Paul is saying is, if all of these virtues we're like articles of clothing, then love is like the overcoat that binds all of these things together. That's what he's saying here. Now, here's why this is so important. When I asked you just a moment ago to imagine your ideal community, many of you probably would have imagined different things. Um, Maybe some of you might have imagined a community of justice, or maybe it was a community of generosity, or maybe it was a community of I don't know, free ice cream for everybody, whatever it is. But I think it's safe to say that every single one of us, no matter what else was in there, imagined that we want to be part of a community where people really love each other. That's what we all want. Now, here's where things actually get a little tricky for us. Because if someone were to ask you, hey, would you like to be part of a community of love? We'd probably all say, well, of course, duh. But here's what we should really say. Well, I would like that, yes, but tell me more about what you mean by love. What do we mean by love? A lot of times, not all of the time, but a lot of times when we talk about love in our culture, what we really mean is permission. When we talk about love, uh, what we mean is live and let live. We mean, um, I will... um, I'm going to give you the freedom to live however you want if if you will not interfere with my freedom to live however I want. That's a lot of times what we mean when we talk about love. Um, And I want you to notice that um, this is really a passive thing. It's a passive kind of love. In other words, in our cultural definition of love, love is really more like standing back from others and letting them do their thing. But how does the Bible define love? When we look at at what the Bible says about love, a lot of the time, um, what we get really is not so much a definition as we get a list or a cluster of various characteristics or qualities. Love is really, it's kind of a very unique fruit tree. It's not just one kind of fruit. You've got apples and oranges and pears and lemons and mangoes and kumquats. You've got a bunch of different kinds of fruit on the love tree. So for instance, one of the most famous places is 1 Corinthians 13. 
Paul says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, uh, endures all things. That love is, we don't get so much a definition as we get a list of characteristics or qualities. We get pretty much the same thing here in this passage. All these virtues that Paul is talking about, these are examples of love in action. And here's what I really want us to see this morning. Like I said, it's not a passive thing. It's not a passive thing. Love is actually an active thing. In the Bible, love is not just standing back from others and letting them do their thing. Love is extending yourself towards others and doing them good. So for instance, compassion. What's compassion? Compassion is extending yourself towards people who are hurting or people who are messy or annoying or inconvenient or maybe even infuriating. The Bible talks about, it says that Jesus had compassion on the crowds when he saw them. Now the crowds Jesus had compassion on would have included people that we'd look at them and say, aw, people who were hurting, people who were marginalized, but it all, the crowds also would have included um, people like Pharisees. They were self-righteous and oppressive. It would have included tax collectors who were financial predators. Jesus extended himself in compassion towards these people. Or when Paul talks about forgiving and bearing with one another, you know that phrase bearing with one another? Really, literally, you could translate that putting up with one another. Love is not a passive thing. This is not just live and let live. In the Bible, love is not standing back from others and letting them do their thing. It's extending yourself towards others and doing them good. That's what this really means. And especially when we realize what this word love in this passage really means. Because many of you may know that in the Greek language, which is the language the New Testament was written in, there are many different words for love. The word that Paul uses is the word agape. Many of you have heard that word. Agape is self-sacrificial love. Agape is the kind of love that puts your interests ahead of my own, your needs, your well-being ahead of my needs and my well-being. You have to die to yourself to, to love people like this. Parents, you know exactly what this is. You die every day to your own desires, interests, and well-beings in order to, to serve the interests and well-being of your children. That's why the older versions of the Bible often translated this word agape as charity, because you have to give up so much to love people like this. Friends, in, in the Bible, love is not standing back from others and letting them do their thing. It's extending yourself towards others and doing them good. You have to die to yourself to love other people like this. And especially when you consider that oftentimes it means loving people who least deserve it. Jesus very famously said, love, um, don't just love or agape the people who love you. Anybody can do that. No, he said, love your enemies. Agape your enemies. Extend yourself towards your enemies in, in a desire to do them good in a self-sacrificial way. A, a community that's shaped by the gospel is going to be a community that's shaped by agape love, self-sacrificial love. It's not just standing back from others and letting them do their thing. It's extending yourself towards others and doing them good. And that's the first aspect of gospel community we see here. But secondly, a gospel-shaped community is a community of truth. We see that in verse 16. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, when Paul says the word of Christ, is he talking about the words spoken by Jesus, his instructions, his parables, his teachings? Um, or is, is Paul talking about the words spoken about Jesus, the, the gospel story of his um, life and death and resurrection? The answer is probably yes. Paul is probably talking about all of these things, both the words spoken by Jesus and the words spoken about Jesus. And all of that comes to us in the Bible. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. All of this comes to us in the Bible. But here's the question. Um, what's the point of all of this? What is the point or the goal of the Bible in our lives? What's the point of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly? We actually see the answer to that question one verse back in verse 15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now, we talk about this word peace here quite a bit. It comes from the Hebrew word shalom. In the Bible, shalom or peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict or a state of inner tranquility. In the Bible, shalom is a state of wholeness and flourishing, and, and it's in every area of life. So not just spiritual wholeness and flourishing, it's um, emotional, intellectual, psychological, uh, physical, economic, social, every area of life. But even more important for us, um, it's not just an individual thing. As modern Western people, it's easy for us to think about this and go, oh, it's all about me. It's all about my personal wholeness, my personal flourishing. No. In the Bible, shalom or peace, is, it's a community thing. So if you want to know what God's goal, what God's vision for the world is, you have to understand this concept of shalom. How do we know what God's goal is? How do we know what real wholeness and flourishing look like in the world? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if you want to know what, what it means to live um, in this world, what is our world supposed to look like? What is our community supposed to look like? What is your life supposed to look like? God's word is the revelation. It reveals his goal. It reveals his vision, his goal for history, his goal for the world, his goal for our lives. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It shows you God's goal for your life. Now, if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith in, in Jesus or faith at all, then you may have trouble. You may not be convinced. Um, that the Bible is a reliable source of authority for your life. Maybe you say, look, there are things that I read in the Bible. They're wonderful things. I approve of those things. But there are many other things in the Bible that I just can't accept. They're regressive. They're primitive. They're archaic. If that's you, then let me offer you some encouragement. Um, by the way, we're going to do a whole sermon series on Scripture, on the Bible, in the month of August. So we'll go into this in a lot more detail then. But, but this morning, if you have trouble with this idea that the Bible could be a trustworthy authority of your life, then let me ask you a question. When we read this list, and, and we read things like compassion, humility, forgiveness, did you find yourself nodding in agreement? Of course. As modern Western people, we love that. We resonate with that. Did you know that in that culture, these things would have been, at the very least, problematic, um, probably even offensive? Why? There's a, a scholar and a world-renowned expert in ancient history. His name is Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man actor. This is a different Tom Holland. 
He's also a very famous Tom Holland, probably just not as famous as the actor, but he's a best-selling author, and he's especially an expert in ancient history, like ancient Roman history, the history of antiquity. And um, he wrote an article a few years ago, I think it was in the New Statesman, that generated a lot of discussion among people. But in this article, he begins by talking about how he grew up going to church, but then early in life, he decided that he was going to commit himself to being a secular person. And, and he goes on to say that as he was doing all of his research and his studying, as he's studying the ancient world, ancient Roman history, one of the things he noticed was that all of the values and the virtues and the morality of the ancient world, it was totally alien to our world. So for instance, in, in the ancient world, which would have been the culture of our Colossian friends, in the ancient world, virtue and moral goodness were found in things like strength and honor and power and dominating your enemies and even exploiting your enemies. No mercy. So things like compassion, humility, forgiveness, caring for the weak, those things, not only would they have not been valued, they would have been looked upon negatively. So in the article, Tom Holland goes on to say that um, even though belief in God is fading in our Western secular society, he says that nonetheless, we still bear the stamp of Christianity in the morals and the values and, and, and the virtues that we champion. He says, we, now understand, you know, he's not trying to convert anyone to Christianity. He's not a Christian himself. He's just one of many historians and philosophers who all point out the same thing, that the only reason that we value things like compassion, humility, forgiveness, and caring for the weak is because we have inherited those things from Christianity. Now, here's the point. When Paul talks about these virtues, we love it. But for the people in that culture, it would have been deeply offensive. And we would look back at them 2,000 years ago and say, how could they have been so blind? Which means that the Bible has the ability to critique every culture from within the culture itself. In other words, if, if the Bible were simply a product of its host culture, it would never be able to do that. The Bible has the ability to critique every culture from within the culture itself. And I think you can see where I'm going with this. It means that if you're reading the Bible and you find yourself offended by something, how do you know that, that you're not being offended by something that 500 years from now people are going to look back on us and say, how could they have been so blind? If the Bible really is God's word, then you will expect that it will not only affirm parts of every culture, it will also critique and challenge and question parts of every culture. Now, that doesn't mean um, that you should just accept everything you read in the Bible without questioning it. I'm not telling you to do that. As I've studied the Bible over the past 23 years, um, as, as, every time I bring a question to the Bible, the more I've brought my questions to the Bible, the more I've encountered it to be more than a match for any question that I've ever brought to it. And I would encourage you to do the same if, if you're troubled by the possibility that the Bible could be an authority for your life. But as you do that, bring your questions, do it. But as you do, and here's the key, do it with an attitude that says, okay, I'm going to bring my questions, but I'm also going to let the Bible question me. 
I'm also going to allow myself to be interrogated and challenged and possibly even offended because if the Bible really is God's word, then we should expect that we're going to be offended and challenged by different parts of it. And that's exactly what you see Paul doing with our friends, the Colossians here in this passage. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But how do you do that? He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now that word admonishing is just kind of an old English way of saying correction, correcting other people. Now, let me ask you a question. When, when we read that, do you instinctively imagine yourself as the one um, receiving the teaching and correction or the one giving the teaching and the correction? If you're like me, then you're instinctively saying, I know a lot of people who could use some teaching and correction. <laughs> we go there like that. It's our default setting. I want to encourage all of us. Yes, there are going to be times when we're going to be called to offer teaching and correction to people. But I want to encourage us to allow our default setting to be our own need of teaching and correction. That we, let, we need the Word of God in our lives and we need other people to leverage that Word into our lives to help us grow more quickly, to grow more holy and more um, fully into God's goal, into God's vision for our lives and as His community. Because if God's vision is that we would be people of compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, patience, and forgiveness, then there's a lot of times when we're not aware that we're not being those things to other people. We need others to help us see that, to teach and admonish us. In other words, we need to grow in self-awareness. What is self-awareness? Or, or emotional maturity is another way of putting this. You know, it's easy to think that spiritual maturity equals emotional maturity, but they're two different things. You can be, what looks like spiritual maturity is, oh, I pray, I read my Bible, I go to church, I, I, maybe I even tithe, I might even serve in the church. Just because you do those things doesn't mean that you're emotionally mature. It doesn't mean that you're an emotionally self-aware person. What is self-awareness? I heard one author um, put it like this. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, he says that self-awareness is the ability to see in real time the effect your personality has on other people, and to observe and then regulate your personality so that you're able to communicate and function in the world at your healthiest level. Self-awareness, he says, is the ability to see in real time, like right when it's happening, the ability to see the effect that your personality has on other people, and then to uh, regulate yourself so that you're able to function in a healthier way with other people. In other words, to be people of compassion, kindness, humility, patience, forgiveness, and so on. So for instance, um, do you know when you're anxious or angry or self-absorbed or arrogant? Do you know when you're dominating a conversation or when you're impatient or insensitive or overbearing or, or any number of other things? And are you aware of what fears or desires are actually driving those things inside of you? And even more than that, are you aware when it's happening of the kind of effect your personality is having on other people when you're acting like that? Are you aware? It's kind of like hearing your voice on a tape recorder. And as soon as I say that, I realize many of you may not have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Way back in the last century, there was this, um, these wonderful little devices called cassette tapes. And what you'd do is you'd put them in a machine, you'd press a button, and it would record your voice. 
I remember the very first time I ever heard my voice played back on a tape recorder. I was indignant. I thought, you know, that's not me. I don't sound like that. Who did this? Somebody's playing a joke on me. No, we sound like that. Hearing your voice, if you've ever heard your voice played back on a recording, you know it's one of the most unsettling and disorienting things that you can experience. Growing in self-awareness is kind of like that. Somebody's going to come to us. They're going to leverage God's word into our life. They're going to speak truth and correction into our life. And we're going to say, I'm not like that. I don't do that. You're wrong about me. Friends, if we're really going to grow into God's vision for our lives, for our community, for the world, then we need God's word in our life. And we really need for other people to leverage God's word into our life so that we can be the people in the community that he calls us to be. And that leads to our last point. Because we've just seen that, yes, we need to be a community of love. And secondly, a gospel-shaped community is a community of truth. But, but if speaking truth, when we are going to speak, if that means doing so with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, meekness, patience, forgiveness, then we need one more thing. We need to be a community of grace. Because here's the question, how in the world are we going to live like this? Because it's one thing to be a part of a community of love, which means that, that I always get to receive this kind of self-sacrificial agape love, but I don't really ever have to give it. And it's one thing to be a part of a community of truth where I always get to be the one who's giving the, the teaching and the correction, but, but I rarely, if ever, have to receive that kind of truth. But it's another thing altogether to be a part of a community where giving that kind of self-sacrificial love is instinctive for us, and receiving that kind of truth and admonishment is also something that we're very willing and, and, and happy to do. I don't know any other way to do that than what Paul shows us in this passage, and it's grace. How does God show us grace, and how does that change us and make us the community he calls us to be? Um, you see it actually um, right back at the beginning of the passage again. I don't know if you noticed it when we were reading it. It's pretty easy to just glide right over this when we're reading it. But notice in the beginning, Paul just doesn't say, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. There's something else that goes in there. Did you see it? We'd skip right over it. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As means that's something you already are. In other words, a Christian is not someone who goes out and, and they act compassionate, kind, humble, patient, meek and forgiving in order to get God to love you and choose you. A Christian is someone who, who acts that way because God already has loved you and chosen you as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You know what that is? That's your identity. We were talking a little bit about this last week. Um, what's an identity? An identity is where you get a sense of worth and value. An identity is also where you get a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And in our culture, when we think about identity, our, our default way of going about getting an identity is we think we got to do certain things, we got to live a certain way, we got to perform to a certain level of expectation. And if we do that, then we will have worth, value, meaning, and purpose in life. Then we will have an identity. We think that who you are is determined by what we do. That's what we think. 
Who I am is determined by what I do. Grace is the exact opposite of that. It's that Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, the gospel, friends, does not say that who you are is determined by what you do. The gospel says that what you do is determined by who you are. Or you could think of it like this. I often preach on this passage when I officiate weddings. And every time I'll, I'll look at the bride during the service and I'll say, you look so beautiful in your wedding gown today. But today you dressed up in this wedding gown, not in order to become a bride, but because today you are a bride. You could have dressed up in this wedding gown every day up to the wedding and it would never have made you a bride. But your dressing up in this gown today is not... It's not the condition for being a bride, it's the evidence of it. Friends, if you're a Christian, then, then living lives of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness is not the condition for God's love in your life, it's the evidence of it. So yes, the gospel calls us to live a certain way, but, but the way we live, we don't live that way in order to be loved, we live that way because we already are beloved. Who you are is not determined by what you do. Who you are is determined, I mean, what you do is determined by who you are. That's the gospel. That's grace. And that's what really gets to work in your life here. Now, if you're a Christian, that's what your identity is. Chosen, holy, and beloved. That's your identity. But here's the question. How do you get an identity like that? You know, this isn't the first time in the Bible that someone has been called chosen, holy, and beloved. When Jesus Christ first began his public ministry, the very first thing that happened is he was baptized, and when he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down out of heaven on him, and, and the voice of God came out of heaven and said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus is the, the true beloved one. And right after that, the Gospel of Mark tells us Jesus met a demon-possessed man. And as soon as that man saw Jesus, the demon inside of him cried out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus is the true Holy One. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the religious leaders standing there, they mocked him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's really the chosen one. Friends, Jesus is the true chosen one. He's the true holy one. He's the true beloved one. That's his identity, but he gives that identity to us through his agape love, through his self-sacrificial, self-donating love. Jesus Christ gives us his identity and he does it on the cross because on the cross, the true, whole, the true chosen one was rejected by God. He was discarded by God in order that you could be chosen by God. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, the true holy one, you know, holy means unique and beautiful and precious, set apart for God's special purposes. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the true holy one, was treated as trash. He was treated as, as ugly, as worthless. He was cast away like yesterday's garbage and treated as common and ordinary and base so that you could be treated as holy, as unique and beautiful and a treasure. And on the cross, the true beloved one, the true beloved son of God was disowned by the father. He was forsaken and abandoned so that you could, could experience the love of the father being poured out on you so that you could hear the voice of God saying to you, my beloved, 
my beloved, chosen, holy, and beloved. That's Jesus' identity, but he gives it to you. He gives it to you on the cross by grace. Who you are is not determined by what you do. What you do is determined by who you are. You're his. You're his. And that changes the way you do everything and the reason you do everything. So for instance, you see that in verse 17, Paul says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that, so that whatever you do in this world, you don't do it in order to get a name, in order to get an identity, you do it because you've already received a name, you've already received an identity, and it's given to you by Jesus. Do you realize what that does for you? You know, G, uh, Jenny and I love the Pixar movies, and we were very excited when Toy Story 4 came out recently. And before we went to go see it, we said, let's watch all the other movies again. So we watched all three movies, uh, one, you know, in three nights in a row, and then went to see the fourth one. It's very interesting to watch all four of those movies in a row like that. You know, I was struck by one of the themes that is so prevalent in that movie. In every single one of those movies, one or more of the toys gets lost. And then when that happens, there's always a temptation to give up or, or to fall into despair. But in every single one of those movies, how does Woody, Sheriff Woody, the, the chief leader of the toys, how does he help the toys? How does he bring them back? For instance, in the very first movie, which was 1995, so I, hopefully I'm not spoiling it for anybody. <laughs> but in the first movie, do you remember Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger, was the, he was the new toy on the block. And when he came out of the box, he didn't realize that he was just a toy. He thought he was a real space ranger. But he gets captured by the mean kid next door and who straps him to a rocket and he's going to blow up Buzz Lightyear. Um, and while he's in the kid's house, he discovers that he's not really a space ranger after all. He's really nothing more than a toy. And, and so he falls into despair. He wants to give up. He's just sitting there with the rocket strapped onto his back, and he's going to let Sid, the mean kid, blow him up. But Woody, who's also been captured, is, is right there next to him. He's trapped in a milk crate. And he says, Buzz, I need your help. And Buzz says, I can't help anyone. You were right about me all along. I'm not a space ranger. And he looks at his wrist with that plastic hinge that says, made in Taiwan on it. I'm just a toy, a silly, stupid, insignificant toy. But Woody says, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a space ranger. Look, there's a kid in that house over there that, that thinks you're the greatest, and it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You're his toy. You're his toy. And do you remember what happens? Buzz hears that, and, and he instead of looking at the Made in Taiwan stamp on his wrist, which he thinks is his real identity, instead of that, he lifts up his foot and he looks at the bottom of his boot. And he sees that name, Andy, written on his foot. And he says, this is the name that's written on me. This is who I am. This is who I belong to. And as a result of that, he's able to stand up and rescue Woody and bring them both back safely home. In every single one of those movies, Whenever a toy gets lost, whenever a toy doubts their real identity, whenever a toy wants to give up, whenever a toy wants to fall into despair, every time that happens, the thing that brings them back is the realization that their whole purpose in life is to bring joy 
to the person whose name is written on them. Do you know the joy of living for the one whose name is written on you? You, who you are is not determined by what you do. What you do is determined by who you are, by whose you are. You are his. You belong to him. And that changes everything about you. So now everything you do, everything you are in this world is determined by that. You're his. So if you want to know, how are you going to live a life of, of agape, self-sacrificial love? How are you going to be a part of a community where you're, you're not just giving, you're receiving truth and correction? How are you going to be a person that's able to live with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and gentleness, and, and forgiveness? How are you going to do that? Remember who you belong to. So every time you look in the mirror, imagine that you can just see the name Jesus written on your forehead. Every time you look in a mirror, and then as you go throughout your day, everything you do, ask yourself, can I do this in the name of Jesus? Can I do this in the name of the one to whom I belong, the name of the one whose name is written on me? Can I do this in his name? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith, where are you looking for worth and value? Where are you looking for meaning and purpose? Let me ask you, and I say this with all sincerity, how is that working for you? And I realize as we say this, for those of us who are Christians, this could apply just as easily to us. How's that working for you? There is a love and an identity that is available to you that is unlike any other. It's real. It's not based on some fanciful tale. It's based on the historical life death, and physical resurrection of the God-man Jesus Christ. Let him write his name on you. Let him redefine you in everything you do. And if you are a Christian here this morning, if you do belong to him, then remember that you do not do what you do. You do not live the life you live in order to get a name or to get an identity. You live the life you live because you've already received a name and an identity from Jesus. Who you are is not determined by what you do. What you do is determined by who you are. You're his. You belong to him. His name is written on you. Live out of that name today and every day. Let that name shape everything you do and everything you are, both now and always. Let's pray.